Join me in the book of Jude, the first and last chapter of Jude. That joke never gets old. So we had really moved fast last week. I don't know if you remember that. We took a lot more passages. In fact, I was making a, a statement. There's a, a pastor that we're going to pray for here in a minute uh, from Wachuca City, David Carnes. He um, had a heart attack, and I went to visit him in the hospital, and we were just talking about what we're working through, what passages we're preaching through. And I just mentioned, yeah, I've been going through Jude, and I'm doing, I was going to do a four-part series, but it ended up being a five-part series. And he looked at me and he said, you're moving way too fast. And I said, I know, there's so much here. So you may think that I've been moving slow, but the reality is I've been moving fast. So I'm going to start our sermon a little bit differently by quoting to you a proverb that I think this passage brings out. In 2 Peter chapter 2.22, he says this, he says that a dog returns to its own vomit. Think about that proverb with me for a minute. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically don't let my dogs return to their own vomit. But I do give them baths, or really my wife gives them baths because she's much cleaner than I am. And they get out of the house and they immediately run to a pile of dirt. And they roll up in it because we just ruined the scent that they had created. And that's what Jude and Second and Peter is talking about, is that false teachers essentially corrupt the way of truth, and they malign the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking at these false teachers, they want to exploit the people of God. And so even though they're saved, or maybe the people that they are trying to manipulate are saved, they want them to go back to the way that things were before. So just like a dog who vomits, I know it's a very graphic image, vomits will return to is what false teachers are trying to make us do. And these wolves, they're, they're fleecing the sheep. They're seeking ways to get gain. And Peter is making a point of these false prophets. They, they knew the Lord, or if they even knew the Lord, they were saved at one point, but they get entangled back in human affairs, uh, human things. And so he said it's better for them to have never known Christ in the first place because they malign Jesus Christ. And so like a dog returns to his vomit or a, an unwa or a washed pig goes back into the mud, this is what Jude is warning us about this morning. So the statement I want you to think about is, if Christ is our greatest treasure, why do we neglect him for lesser things? Or to put it another way, our worship is misdirected to lesser goods when the greater joy is life and freedom in Christ. And that's what the false teachers want to do. So let's go ahead and, and pray, in particular for David after his heart attack. Father God, I pray for David and, and a recovery for him. Lord, thank you that his stay in the hospital was quick uh, with a, a fast stint, and he was able to get back um, home yesterday. God, we pray for his church and his congregation as they are uh, seeking to do a first responders uh, celebration or worship. Uh, worship service that, that recognizes first responders. So God, we pray for them. We pray for their congregation. Lord, we also pray for the, the churches in our community, that they would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, that there would be no false teachers or false prophets sneaking in trying to destroy or to blind or to steal from the sheep that you uh, that is your flock. 
God, we pray for our service this morning. We pray for Jude as we study this very complicated and intricate passage that you would make it clear for us. Lord, give me uh, clarity of what I need to say. Help the, the, the people listen fast as we move quickly through the text. Uh, God, I pray for us to not only gain understanding, but to be able to put this into action. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. So we are just doing verses 12 through 19, and then we'll finish up with 20 uh, through 24, or excuse me, 25 next week. Jude uses prophetic language. Remember, we talked a lot about this. We talked a lot about why is he using these weird stories that we've never heard before about Enoch or about Moses, about Michael the archangel. Why is he using this language about that we just really don't have in our Bibles? And we said, you know, he's, he's really using the contemporary uh, stories or the contemporary sermons of the day to make points. And that's what he's going to continue to do for us. But he's, he gives us really basically three prophecies. So he's using the prophetic language, and he, uses, he gives us three prophecies. And so we have the prophecy of Jude, we have the prophecy of Enoch, and we have the prophecy of the apostles. And really, this is a sermon. So if you read this passage, I want you to read it like you would a sermon. He's using illustrations, he's using application, and he's using uh, stories and, and modern-day stuff. Just like I talk about um, C.S. Lewis, or I talk about The Lord of the Rings, or anything like that, I'm using contemporary, well, mostly contemporary, examples of the day. And that's what he's doing. So he wants to warn his people about the dangers of false teachers and their teaching because, remember, this is a, there's a, a reason for this. He didn't just set out to write a letter to attack false teachers. He wrote a letter because mi that they were misdirecting the worship of the one true God. And we see that in the cults today. They take away from the deity of Christ. They make Jesus something other than he really is in Scripture. And these false teachers are misdirecting people, but also trying to lead them into a life of debauchery. He's trying to lead them into a life that says holiness is not important. You can live however you want. And so that's what he is warning against. And I haven't brought this out yet because I wanted to save it for today. But if you read 2 Peter and you compare 2 Peter and Jude, you're going to notice a connection. You will notice some of the same language being used. And there's a lot of speculation. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? No, which came first, Jude or 2 Peter? Uh, some, some will say that, that Jude came first, and, then sec and Peter is basically writing off of what Jude has said. Others will say that Peter came first, and Jude is using the language of Peter. Uh, I'm leaning now more towards the, the idea that Peter wrote first, and Jude followed along, because Jude almost has to, to write this letter in a, in a wartime scenario. They are being bombed, and he is writing commands about where to return fire. So it's a very immediate, necessary, I have to warn you about these false teachers. And so he uses the language of Peter in this, which really leads to our prophecy. So we have the prophecy of, of Jude, 12 through 13. Let's go ahead and read this passage because, because Jude is, is warning of the dangers of false teachers. He describes the contemporary situation. He said, this is what it's like right now. Verse 12, these people are dangerous reefs 
or you may have blemishes or spots at your love feasts. As they eat with you without reverence, they are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up with their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. So Jude begins by opening up here in verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs or or blemishes or spots at your love feasts. What is he talking about? Well, in the early church, Christians would gather in the evenings. After a long day of work, you would gather with other Christians and you would eat together, you would celebrate, you'd worship, you'd hear a word from the Lord. Someone would bring a, a passage or something. It was like an everyday kind of activity. And not only that, but they would also practice the Lord's Supper. So Jude is not talking about just the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about the whole gathering, the Sunday worship. So what we typically recreate on a Sunday is something that the early Christians were doing regularly. So he said that these people, once again, same language, these people, these false teachers, these traveling uh, prophets are dangerous reefs. This term of love feast is, is quite popular. And he's, he's, he's continuing to talk about the fact that these people, these false teachers are sitting in the worship service, in the meal, causing a problem. And what is the problem? So your translation may say blemish or spot. It's a very difficult Greek word to translate. It's not a very common Greek word. A reason, the reason why it's usually translated spot or blemish is because Second Peter uses the same exact language. And so he uses a different Greek word, but it's to recognize a spot or a blemish. Whereas if you go to the context of this word, it's actually like a rock. So if you're a sailor and you're navigating along the shoreline as the sailors did back in those days, they didn't like to go out into the ocean, and you looked into the water, you would see a dark spot, right? And that was usually a rock or coral reef that you did not want to run aground on. And so Jude is warning them and says that these people are dangerous reefs. And, and this is the first of six other images, or six images, the first of six. So he is saying there's a danger in your family worship. There's a danger in your mealtime worship, that these false teachers are just under the surface, and you can get shipwrecked. In fact, the closer your proximity to them, the more dangerous that this is going to be. And then he describes what they do. Let's let's look at this. He says, as they eat with you without reverence. They're just having a party. So these false teachers are coming in. They're gratifying their appetites. They're stuffing their faces, as we would say in contemporary language. And instead of fellowshipping and recognizing that this is done to the Lord and for fellow Christians, it's just a feast to them. It's just a party. Remember how Paul warns the Corinthians and says, don't you have homes in which you can eat at? Why do you go and stuff your face and eat all the food before the poor people get off work? Right? Because they were not recognizing this as a reverence thing, as a time of worship. And so that's the first warning. He says, these people, they come in and they're not worshipful. They have an agenda. They want to fill their own needs. And that is to stuff their faces. But not only that, he says they're shepherds. He calls them shepherds. He says these are shepherds 
who look after themselves only, or they only look after themselves. Now, this is a common metaphor that is continually used in, um, in the church. And he says that these leaders, they want to be leaders, they're claiming to be leaders, but they're really selfish. He says, instead of tending the flock, they look out for themselves. And this is a reference to uh, Ezekiel 34.2. And he says that the sheep provide wool and meat, and the shepherds devour them instead of caring for them. So a false teacher is someone who comes into the church looking for how to make a buck, looking for how to manipulate you into getting money or something else, right? It's not always about money, is it? For these false teachers, it seems to be sexual favors. And there seems to be more and more of a reference to an unholy lifestyle. And then he goes on, he gives us another image. He says, so that, that was the first two images about leadership. The second one is, the rest of these are all about natural in, environments. And so he says that these are waterless clouds carried along by winds. The false teachers claim to be sent from God, yet they are clouds with no rain. This is a quote from Proverbs 25, 14. And if you've been in the Middle East, in fact, if you've been in Arizona, you know what it's like to look at a cloud and say, oh, thank the Lord, we're going to get some rain. And it comes, it's coming, it's coming. We get a little bit of shade and then it just blows on by. And we don't get any rain, right? And that's what we see with these false teachers. And the reason you need to know this is because false teachers are not just trying to suck you dry of, of, your, of your money or your life circumstances. They want to suck you dry spiritually. They're vampires. And what they're seeking to do is to destroy you and to destroy your faith. So you have to know who these false teachers are, and that's why we're describing what they do. They promise, and they never deliver. That's what they're saying here. There's no rain. They are full of empty promises. Then we have this fruitless trees. The next thing, it says, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. Now, we have some fruit trees in our backyard. We discovered that after we bought the place. And I've been kind of excited. I've been going back there and watching these little flowers turn into fruit. Um, there was an olive tree back there, and I took one of the olives just to test it to see what it was like. It was kind of still kind of wrinkly. It was not quite ready, but there was one left. And every day I went out and looked at that little olive and just waited for him to grow. I'm just like, come on, come on. And one day it wasn't there. Some, something ate it, either a bird or a dog or a rabbit. I don't know. And I, and I was so disappointed. I, don't, I think I even told my wife, I'm like, my olive is gone. The one olive that I have been longing for is gone. But, and that's what, that's what Jude is saying. He said, these false teachers... They promise and they promise and they promise and you're getting excited. You're like, you can taste it in your mouth, the fruit, and you go there on autumn when you should have a harvest and there's nothing. It's empty. In fact, they're dead. And not only are they dead, but they've been uprooted. They're twice dead. They are dead dead. Not mostly dead, but really dead. Fully dead. And this is also a reference to their judgment. The judgment to the false teachers is that they promise fruit but they provide nothing. And they're going to be uprooted and they're going to be thrown into the fire. It refers to their physical state and their spiritual state. Twice dead. And then we have these wild waves. He says in verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea 
foaming up their shameful deeds. This is a passage from Isaiah 57:20. So just like the wicked that roar, you know, if you've ever been by an ocean, you hear the just the overwhelming sound of the waves. And it's, you know, it's peaceful to some extent, but as the wave comes in and begins to churn, and as the things churn up, man, we get like rubber flip-flops, we get all sorts of junk that gets washed up on the shore. And that's what Paul, or sorry, excuse me, Jude is saying about these false teachers, that their gunk begins to come up. The shameful deeds are foaming up. And so it's filled with filth. They produce garbage and junk. So not only do they promise something that they don't deliver, now we're seeing that they actually produce junk. They're giving you something that is garbage. And I'm not talking about one man's trash is another man's treasure kind of garbage. I'm talking about garbage, garbage. You can't do anything with it. And then he uses this really odd language. Wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. He's borrowing from this first Enoch book. Now remember what I said. I said during Jude's time, there were Jewish preachers, we'll just use that term loosely, Jewish teachers that would use the story of like Enoch or Moses and basically make up a story. And they would have these stories, kind of like Shakespeare would often quote parts of the Bible to make his own stories. This is what's going on here. And so the book of Enoch is essentially that. It's just a collection of of these stories that these Jewish guys have, have taken from the Bible and turned into their own story. And, and Jude, as a, as a really good preacher, he knows that's what his people are listening to, right? Just like I know that certain people are watching something on TV and they're going to be talking about it. Um, I'm not going to say what it is because I don't think it's that good and my wife should stop watching it. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just joking. Seriously joking. I'm just serious. So, it's a common thing that everybody's watching, and he's talking about it. So, back then, obviously, they didn't have TVs, but they had stories. So, he brings up this story, says that these are, that the, the popular belief is that heavenly creatures or angels controlled the stars. And so, these moving stars are really just fallen angels. So, Jude is saying, like fallen angels, these false teachers, they wander until they are snuffed out in darkness. They wander from the path of obedience instead of remaining on their course. And that's what he is emphasizing. And it's another interesting point is that hell is often described as a place of utter darkness, of being alone. How many of you have heard people joke and say, well, uh, at least I'll have plenty of company in hell? They don't know what hell is going to be like. It's going to be utter darkness and misery. It's going to be lonely. This passage, I think, is very helpful in identifying false prophets, but I also think it's helpful for us in examining our own hearts. Now, I like how Ryan, in, when, he, when he talked about Psalm 53, emphasized we are all like the fool without Jesus Christ because we're all foolish. We're on a foolish path. And that's what this is saying here is that we could be false teachers but just not with our mouths, but with our actions. So when you come to the gathering of the congregation, when you come to church service to worship, what is your motivation? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about your motivation for coming to church? Are you motivated by love? You know, If you go back to verses 1 and 2, 
Jude says to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing that, be, that beloved aspect. Do you care about the people around you? Or are you so self-centered that it's all about you? When you come to church, are you thinking about how can I stir up the other people in the seats next to me to worship? Or is it more like, man, I'm really uncomfortable right now. I want to fix this or I want to change this or it's, it's all about me. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think that my heart is not ready for worship. Am I here for myself? Because I really need to worship God. I need to get my, my worship tank filled up so that I can spend the whole week worshiping. Or am I here to love other people, to love those sitting next to you? I think it's good to think about that. Are you here for selfish reasons or for reasons of worship? Now, the last thing I want to do is put on some heavy weight on, on people you know, who are already suffering. Because we have many people in this church who are suffering, who are tired, who are worn out from a busy life uh, or from illness. So he, please hear what I'm saying. When you come to church, are you looking for ways to actively love the people that gather here? Or are you using, or, or, or better yet, are you using your unique gifts for the good of those in this place in the church right christ died for the church so should we not be seeking the good of other people uh, maybe you're a good listener maybe someone just needs to talk and you're the only person that they know you know we have a lot of widowers and widows in this congregation and that can be a lonely time for people are you a good listener if you don't know if you have any gift well i'll tell you one gift that you can have prayer. Are you constantly praying for the members in this congregation? Do you have your um, directory open and pray through everyone you have here? Do you go open up the bulletin and pray for the events that we have coming on? That's a, a great way to connect, draw near. Maybe you're really good with difficult people. Reach out to somebody that seems like a difficult person. I hope everybody gets reached out to today because that would be so funny, right? Because we're all difficult, right? We're all hard to deal with. So are you drawing near? Are you, is your goal when you come to worship to worship the living God through love, but also to love those here, even the ones that are maybe not as lovable? I think we can be false teachers with our actions when we come here seeking to only fill ourselves up. And, I, and that's... Side note, that's my problem with the five love languages. It's, a, it's about filling my own love cup. So let's make a commitment this week to draw near to someone, to love them actively, and show some interest in, some, in other people. Which leads to our second prophecy. Now he jumps into this weird book of Enoch. The prophecy of Enoch. And it's really an illustration of judgment. So just like he teased us with the wandering stars analogy... He now moves into this Enoch business. Verse 14, it was about these, the wandering stars, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. So he's officially quoting now from this first book of Enoch. It's that same 
sermonic material, that same story, language. It's kind of like a, a fantasy story. And they made up a story about Enoch being a prophet and prophesying about these things. We don't read any of that in Genesis. Genesis chapter 5.18 where we're introduced to Enoch. So Jude here is highlighting the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to judge. The earliest Christians were waiting on that reality. They were waiting for the Lord to return and they were waiting for him to return with judgment. And so that's what they are saying, that he is going to come with his angels to execute judgment. Christ is going to return for his church and judge these false teachers. These false teachers who have snuck in to the love feast, to the, the gathering, will be judged. And so if you are a false teacher, you will be judged by the living God. That is frightening. Jude is emphasizing through this illustration that Christ will return. And he's going to judge their ungodly actions and the ungodly way that they do things. He's not only going to judge them based on their words, but also on their behavior. The shameful deeds that the, the water brings up. Now the emphasis on words I think is interesting uh, I think it's interesting that Maria brought up, am I ever going to speak about or preach on the tongue? The dangers of the tongue, right? Because a tongue is like the rudder of a ship, as James tells us. Or it's like a little spark that can cause a fire. Man, we don't know anything about that here in Arizona, do we? Have you seen all the signs lately? Make sure your chains aren't hanging low on your trailers because that's usually what causes fires here. And those massive fires, what do they do? They burn acres upon acres upon acres of land. They displace people. And that's what the tongue does. The words that we say are like a little spark that we can't take back. They set something on fire. And that's what he says about these false teachers. He says, godly, uh, he's going to convict, verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in ungodly ways and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These false teachers are using their words to destroy or to attack, not to destroy, but to attack Christ. And by doing that, they're attacking the body first in order to set a wildfire. Have you ever heard of a, a, how a, a little tidbit of gossip can spread around a congregation? Like wildfire. What we say is dangerous. And so here are some of the, the judgments that he's going to, to emphasize here in verse 16. And of course, we know Jude, he loves to make all these things one after another. So first we have grumblers. Verse 16, these people are discontented grumblers. Man, I just, I just love how, how he puts those together. Discontented grumblers. Uh, this reminds me of the people of Israel in the wilderness. They grumbled a lot, didn't they? Which eventually led to outright rebellion. Man, I, it's, just, it's almost like a comedy when you read that in the Old Testament. I've been reading through numbers in my reading plan. And over and over again, they go to Moses and they're like, oh, I wish you would have never taken us, uh, freed us from slavery in Egypt. I wish we could go back to being chained up because, man, we're going to die out here in this wide open wilderness. 
We don't want the land of milk and honey anymore. We just want to go back to the, the flesh pots of Egypt. But over and over again, they repeat these things. They're grumblers. They're so discontented. And so he says, that's what these false prophets, these false teachers are. They are grumblers. They grumble about everything. And, and this is something that I struggle with in my own life. When my wife says something to me, but I really don't want to have a conflict with her, I grumble, right? I try to say it just under my breath, just enough to, be, to know she's un, I'm unhappy because she has to know that I don't like something because that's just the rules, right? That's what husbands make sure their wives know that they are unhappy. And so I grumble. She says, hey, do the dishes. Like, oh, yeah, I'll do the dishes. I'll, sure, I'll do the dishes, you know? And I, I'm just grumbling like a jerk. But that's what these false teachers do. They're, they're discontent with the life that Christ offers, and though they grumble. And in fact, when I grumble, you know who else learns to grumble? My children. And then I gotta spank bottoms. No, I gotta discipline them because they are grumbling now just the way I am. And then my wife picks on my bad habits and she does it, right? Because it's contagious, it's like a wildfire. So these false teachers eventually lead to outright rebellion through grumbling. And he says this, he says, living according to their desires. So not only are they discontented, but they're living according to their desires. You know, we could put this big umbrella over living according to your own desires and just say it's selfishness. That's what it is, it's selfishness. But if we think even more narrowly, there's a progression about how we live according to our desires. And then guess where it starts? Genesis chapter 3. I see, I want, I need, I demand. I see, I want, I need, I demand. I'm driving home after a long day of work, and I see my comfort waiting for me. I like to read Old Dead Puritans, and so as I'm driving home, I'm thinking about, man, I cannot wait to crack open that new Puritan book that I got. I'm going to sit on my couch, kick up my feet. I'm going to just read this wonderful book. And as I approach, I see that. In fact, I need that because if I don't get my comfort this week, man, I'm going to be a bad pastor. Nobody wants a grumpy pastor. In fact, I need it in order to be a good pastor. In fact, I need it so I can be spiritually fed. And if I don't get it, I'm going to demand it. Eventually, I get to the house and the kids are running around. My son is running around with a pair of scissors, half naked, my little two-year-old. And my little idol of comfort begins to evaporate, doesn't it? And I realize, oh man, I got to be a dad. I got to put in some work around this house. I got to do something here. I can't just go sit on the couch. And I get angry because my comfort is disrupted. That's never happened to you guys, right? None of you have ever needed, wanted, desired something, and then had it taken from you, and then realized, man, I'm an angry person, and it reveals your heart. Living according to our desires is rebellion against the living God, because I should have a servant mindset when I come home. And so for me, I have to put my idol of comfort to death and approach my home with the servant mindset that God has called me to have. And we all have that, but not these false teachers. These false teachers are all about themselves. And so if the air conditioning isn't the way that they want it, you're going to find out. But they're not going to tell the people that need to know. They're going to grumble. They're going to gossip. 
They're going to be like, well, I bet the pastor just wants to save money. That's why it's keeping it so hot in here. I don't know if that's what they say, but that could be what they say. And then he goes on and talks about arrogant words. Their mouths utter arrogant words, prideful words. Now, I really like this Greek word. I'm going to nerd out for just a second with you. But it basically means bulky words, big fat words. The, uh, these false teachers have big words. They're all talk. They only use these words to confuse reality. You just can't nail them down. You don't know what they mean. They're duplicitous. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And this is the, the reality. You know, we, we had a discussion uh, not too long ago about a certain uh, religious group, and they will use the same words that you and I use, but they have different definitions than what we use. And so when they talk about Jesus, they have a different Jesus in mind. But they're going to say, no, 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 we believe in Christ. We believe in Jesus. It's just not the same Jesus that we all actually agree on. So there's a, a change in the definition. And so these, these false teachers, they use big words to confuse you, to make you feel small. So they use their big words that they learned in college and seminary, and then they throw them at you so that you feel maybe a little bit less. So you won't challenge them, right? And so they say, well, you know, obviously that pastor, he just speaks so simple. You know, your pastor is just plain. He doesn't understand propitiation and transubstantiation and all these different big, fast, fast words that we learn in school. He doesn't understand those things. No, the pastor just wants you to understand what he's talking about. And so these, these false teachers, they come in and they speak out of both sides of their mouth. And when you go to them and you say, well, what do you mean? They say, well, you know, if you do this and go there and this and that and forth. And so that's how you know them. They're arrogant with their words. They have bulky words. Finally, they're flattering people for their own advantage. Have you ever had someone who just drips sweet words? Like, oh, you are so handsome. I just love your hair. Or man, those are, you know, you, you are so smart. Why is the pastor not making you preach? Why aren't the elders recognizing how amazing you are? You know, you've been here for at least 10 years. You should, you should be leading this joint, right? They're using all these sweet words, flattering. And they compliment so that they can get what you to do what they want. They manipulate to create factions and separate the body. Did you hear that, that little dialogue? What are they trying to do? They're trying to separate you, and they're trying to make you have your own little group, right? Oh, we're the in-group. We get it. I know you get it, but other people, they don't get that. You know, other people in this congregation, they don't get it. So we're going we're gonna to have two groups, and they separate the body because a separated foundation is easy to destroy. So we see the character of false teachers. But in order to prevent false teachers from having a foothold in our church, we must be anti this behavior, right? We must be against flattery for advantage, we must be against uttering arrogant words. We must be against living according to our desires. Right? We're anti-following our heart. We are pro-following God's word. Right? We want to be anti this type of behavior. We want to be anti-discontented grumbling. And that takes a lot of work to be content. 
to find contentment in Christ. But we can do that through Jesus Christ. There's nothing so tasty as grumbling. The more we do it, the more we have a taste for it. You ever catch yourself grumbling, just barely audible so that others can hear you, but not loud enough to actually talk to someone? You know what this does? It takes glory from God. It makes us not love God and love others when we are discontented grumblers. You know, even their words drip with sweetness, but their motives are bitter manipulation. Have you ever done that? Been so sweet to someone, even though you really hate them? We've had to, I think we've all kind of seen politicians. We all know how politicians operate. To your face, they promise you everything they're going to do. I'm for this. I'm for you. I want, I want you as a, the farmer, the rancher, whatever, to, to do this. I, I'm, I'm for you. And then they go off to Washington, D.C., and they undercut everything. Right? That's the same way that these false teachers act. They are politicians. Uh, and you can see that in churches today. You see that all over the place. So finally, we have the prophecy of the apostles. And i got to move quick. we got seven. Well, I'm already over time. Prophecies of the Apostles, 17 through 19. He says, but you, dear friends, so don't be like these false teachers. Remember what was predicted by the Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes me think that Jude is not the Apostle Jude. He's just the brother of Jesus Jude. I say just, but he's the brother of Jesus Jude. And so he says he's not the Apostle, but the Apostles told you. And he reminds the church what was predicted and so this is the closing of the body of the letter. And then he'll have his exhortation that we'll talk about next week. He tells them to remember what the apostles repeatedly said. The apostles repeated this. He said what was predicted by the apostles. And the prophecy from the apostles contains three elements. Time, character, and lifestyle. So in verse 18, he says, They told you in the end time... There will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. So starting with time, the prophecy is about the last times, which is what the readers of Jude were living in. The readers of Jude are living in the last times. That's what Jude is saying. He's not saying this is a future event. He's warning them about a current event right now. He says, this is happening now, and this has already been predicted. So he says that the last times are what the author or the readers are in, since the people are describing the people that he's encountering right now. And this is common language in the New Testament. I don't have time to unpack every passage, but Hebrews 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 2, 1 Peter 1, 20, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, 1 Timothy 4, 1, Matthew 24, 10 through 12, 1 John 2, 18 through 19, Mark 10, 30, all describe the last times as current for the readers. So that's the time he's describing. So this prophecy is the last time, which is what these people are living in. We're going to have these types of people, these false teachers. Uh, these are what is going on. False teachers are infiltrating the church. And they have been since Jude wrote this, every, ever since then continually. So then we have the character of these false prophets. It is that they are scoffers. It's often 
used to refer to those who question the Lord's return to judge. Well, where's God? You said Jesus is coming back. It's been centuries. It's been all these years. When is he, he going to be here? Oh, we don't have to worry about that thing, that judgment thing. Just live your life. Grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Let's just live our lives. No judgment. We're free to do whatever we wish. That's what the false teachers are teaching. They're rejecting morality. And then we have a lifestyle. It says that these people create divisions, which we already talked about. They are worldly, not having the spirit. They're living according to ungodly desires. So they claim to be Christians. They say, I'm a Christian, but follow Christ, but they refuse to live as he lived. I like someone, someone way smarter than me came up with this. He says, you can't say you follow Christ, but live like the devil. Right? You can't say that you follow Christ, but live like the devil. But man, don't we see that today? Don't we see so many people claiming to be Christians, but just living however they want, twisting Scripture to make it mean whatever they want it to mean? And it's so heartbreaking. And then Jude's comments in verse 19, he says, these people create divisions, they are worldly. They don't have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not live in them. The effect to the church is that these people are separating the body. They are saying that some are holy and some are not. Some are special because they have this extra spiritual experience. The people Jude is condemning are those who have special insight. I'm going to go ahead and skip the application and just jump to the conclusion. I had a lot more to say, but we're just going to skip it. Jude sees the danger and warns us with prophetic language. He reminds us of what it means to worship the one true living God. Our, um, are we allowing the things in the world to distract us from living daily daily worship of the living God? Are you spending time daily contemplating who Jesus Christ is? Are you studying Him through faith? Are you reading His Word regularly? I would even say daily. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how do you change? How do you go from being in bondage to addiction, to drugs, to uh, selfishness, to our own desire, to grumbling? How do we go from there to being a contented worshiper of the living God? By looking at Christ. Daily looking at Him, and we are being transformed into the same image. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on His perfect life, His death, His resurrection. Have your heart be moved by His marvelous beauty. Rest in His completed work. And honestly, that's how you stand firm in the faith. If you are so in, in, in love with Christ and what He has done, nothing will move you. Nothing will distract you from the love that you have in Christ. I think that's something that we need to remember this week as we go about our business. Are you so in love with Christ that these false teachers could not drag you away with a 10-ton truck? Are you so in love with Christ that nothing can separate you from the joy that you have in Him? Not cancer, not 
anger, not frustration, not mean people, not conflict, not anything will take you from the joy that you have in Him. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord God, I, I know that this ends with difficulty. It's so hard for, for us to remember you daily. That's why over and over again in the New Testament, we're reminded of all that Christ has done for us. Uh, I, I love how, how Paul tells me that it's no trouble for him to remind me of these things as I read about the living Lord. Lord, we have, we have no cause for sorrow if we live in, in the joy of Christ. That this life is not... It, that there's more than this little minuscule life, that we have eternity to look forward to with no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more diseases, no more illnesses, no more addictions, and no more selfish desires, but completely and utterly abandoning this for you. God, I ask that you set fire to our hearts today, that you would uh, invigorate us as we seek to know and love the living God that we would look upon Christ and be transformed from one glory to the next, that we would have our joy on the one true foundation, that our church would not be separated from its foundation in Christ, the, the cornerstone that we lay all the rest of the, the, the blocks for. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this mercy. Help us to rest in you daily. We ask these things in the, the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.